just read a few verses from Corinthians chapter two, verses chapter uh, Corinthians two, chapter ten, verses one to five. It says these words: I, Paul, myself, entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For through, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What an incredible series we just finished, haven't we? I think, you know, we've been here coming into our seventh year, and I just think, what an incredible series that was. And we find ourselves today between series from what we just finished and the new one that we're going to start over the next weeks. And when Don and I were talking about this morning, we thought it would be good to go back and look at some of the things that we know, that we know as Christians, but some of the things that we need to, as it were, keep sharp, that we need to calibrate in our lives. We know the theory, we know the reality, but what is our practice like in some of these areas? And today, I'd like, therefore, to talk about something that affects and influences all of us, and that is our thinking and our thought patterns and how we go about controlling what happens up here. In particular, I'd like to unpack the phrase, holding every thought captive, And what on earth does this mean? This is one of those biblical phrases that either completely intimidates us or we just don't go there and we just rush over it. But I just want us to to take a few moments this morning to discuss and unpack ways that allow us through the power of the Holy Spirit to attempt, to help us to attempt to capture our imagination, our fantasies, and therefore transform our thinking. What does it mean to take every single thought captive in our life and to hold it there? Is it really ever possible? Is what he's saying a a reality? How many thoughts have we already had today? If we had uh, had a whiteboard up here and we wrote out all our thoughts that we had had for the past three months and we were to discuss them, I wonder how many of us would stay in the building? I'm not sure I would stay here at all. You've heard Don and I quote the the great incident from the the life of Arthur Conan Doyle when he wrote to 10 friends and said, flee, all is discovered, and within 24 hours, all had left the city and disappeared, and he had nothing on them. He was just doing it as a joke. But the reality for us as Christians is that it is possible to hold our thought life captive. It is possible because the Bible says. The Bible wouldn't hold up something that wasn't possible. And Proverbs 23 verse seven says, as a person thinks in his heart, so they are. So as we think, so we are. So what are we like? What am I really like? When all the external stuff and regalia is removed. What am I like in my heart when I am left alone with myself? Do I control things like I should? This is the uncomfortable truth that Jesus taught his followers. And 
if you want to know what a person is really like, then you need to look at the words that they say and don't look at the things that they do because of the overflow of the heart comes through the mind and through the words. To look at someone's mind is an intriguing situation, is an intriguing invitation, and yet incredibly challenging. Especially for us as Westerners, for we love to take the external factors that we can produce and manufacture and airbrush and allow these to be the determining portraits of who we are. For often the external items, the external image is nicer and we are much more palatable externally than perhaps we are internally. And this is the challenge that the Christian faith tries to speak into, and especially through Paul here in 2 Corinthians 10. Here Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, which is really, really difficult to lead. It is full of people who think they are right, and they're constantly arguing with Paul. They're constantly making a case for him not being really genuine, but a fraud, and they are the real thing. Something has gone wrong in this church. They are sleeping with people they shouldn't be sleeping with. They are misusing spiritual gifts and they are turning the bread and wine, the Lord's table, into the haves and the have-nots. It's not a healthy church. There is a competitiveness. They are living in cliques. There are arguments and there's a lot of philosophy and people are saying, my way is better than yours. And they are saying, my way is right because I am cleverer than than you are. And they are asking, who is this Paul? Who does he think that he is? But Paul is trying to counter all their arguments and telling them that despite all their arguments, all their theological training, all their theological dissertations, that they are wrong because they aren't thinking right, that they are not thinking properly. Here in this passage, he says, you're not doing it right. You have all these arguments, but you need to take your thoughts captive. And so it is in the midst of this that we find this phrase, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And whatever is going on in this passage as a backdrop, and perhaps we will never know, this is a very real challenge for us, and I know it is for me in the 21st century. There are some of us, if you are anything like me, you have a problem with your thinking. We think resentfully, we think angrily, we think stoically, we think that we were always right and others are wrong. We think arrogantly and proudly and to think sometimes too little of ourselves. We think in terms that are tainted by shame and embarrassment and guilt and so much more. It doesn't matter what the wrong thinking is. The reality is how we think shapes who we are. Paul is arguing that there is a way that we can hold our thoughts captive so that the life we live can actually flow out of something that is good and healthy and whole. It is important to note here that Paul says that the way that we are going to control our thinking is not through argument and debate but by putting the best argument forward, by being rational. In fact, he is saying those things won't work. But that is how many of us think and act and argue as Christians. For the logic of our mind tells us this. Well, when I learn to control my mind, when I control to learn uh, to correct my wrong thinking, when I learn to overcome or subdue my crooked thoughts or fantasies or any thought that is out of kilter, when I can get the arguments clear in my mind and in my head, then my arguments will be right and I will be able to live right. 
I am not saying that our intellect, our arguments don't matter, for of course they do, but we will never get our thought right on our own because the battle is not simply intellectual, it is primarily spiritual. We can argue and philosophize ourselves round and round in circles for years maybe, and all the issues we struggle with, but we will never know peace because of the battle is at a spiritual level. I get the privilege to sit with many, many people, and sadly many people have struggled with guilt, resentment, shame, sexual hangups for 20, 30, 40 years, and they're saying them, when I get them straight in my head, when I get over them, when I've worked it through, I will be okay but they are no closer to getting it resolved. And may I say, we will never get those things resolved unless there is something spiritual that happens in our life. Spiritual warfare, spiritual victory, and taking control of our minds needs more than our intellect can provide us with. This is not a call to be irrational, but to be super rational. If we hold every thought captive, then we need supernatural help. Paul says to the people in Corinth, that the way of thinking for them is not going to be changed, but really through the power of the Holy Spirit. The challenge that flows out of this for you and me is if we are serious about getting our thought life, our thinking straight, then we have to acknowledge that we need help and we cannot get it sorted on our own. We need to take every thought captive, but as Paul says, it's not easy. The best way, and this is an illustration I've used before, but the best way I can illustrate this is to remind us of those newsreels that we have seen on the news when there has been some bloody and horrific fight for a, for a city, and the city has been won, but the victory will only be secured when there is street by street, house by house fighting. Many of us of a certain age, or if we, we like history, will remember the historic footage we saw of World War I and World War II, where cities had been defeated in principle and in the widest sense, but victory had not been secured because the enemy was still holding each house and each street, and there was another battle that had to be seen and fought. If you've ever seen the film Enemy at the Gate with Jude Law, it is a classic example of the, the forces trying to take Stalingrad. We've seen it more recently on our news programs in respect to the Middle East and the fight against ISIS. One classic city being that of, of fight, I should say, of Mosul, where the city was surrounded and cut off from the main ISIS forces, but each, the city was, as it were, useless as it were to the enemy, but there was vicious and guerrilla warfare that had to take the street and house one by one. And this is a very same example, same illustration, same language that Paul is using here about the battle for our minds and taking every thought captive. It's taking every house, it's taking every room, it's taking every street. So having taken the city, he says that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is gonna help us take every thought captive. And he lays out a three-stage process in his writings. First of all, it means that we come to Jesus. Our sins are forgiving, are forgiven, and the renewing of our minds takes place. Secondly, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the fortress of our minds are identified. Areas that is in enemy control or out of control, whether it be greed or bitterness and forgiveness, sexual issues, damage through abuse, or much more. And these differ from place, a person to person. 
Then Paul says the Holy Spirit wants to take our thinking and wants to help us think properly, and this is the street fighting, and no doubt it is a fight. So if we are going to take every thought captive, we need to identify with incredible honesty the fortresses of our mind that cause us to think incorrectly and about the things that challenge us. This is not a thing, this is not an opportunity that we talk openly and put our hands up and say this is my issue. These issues are deeply, deeply personal. These are issues that are unique to us. These are issues that are so intensely private and personal that we probably have not told some people even who are dear, dear family or friends of us. They are perhaps incredibly shameful and embarrassing. And then we have to identify them and then we have to bring our thoughts under subjection to Jesus Christ. This is incredibly personal because the issues are personal. What may be an issue for your life may not be an issue for mine. What may be an issue in my life may not be an issue in yours. It depends on our journey, it depends on our narrative, it depends on how we find ourselves here. This is incredibly personal. You know, Remember the days we used to talk about deliverance? Remember those? We don't seem to talk about deliverance as much as we used to do. Or maybe I'm just feeling like an old man. But you know, sometimes when it comes to a place and a time in our life when we come to the God and we say through the power of the Holy Spirit, we need you to deliver us from these things. And that we need to have that power encounter with the Holy Spirit that starts to break the fortresses, that starts to, as it were, flush out the streets that the enemy has in our minds and to bring us to a place where we are set free free through an encounter and that we are delivered. It is interesting to note here, and we see it only in part in English, but more so in the original, is that Paul is not talking about his thoughts here when he says, us and we. He is clearly implying, and we see this, as I said, in the original, that there is a role for others in the process of our lives. Therefore, based on this, can I at least suggest that we all need to have at least someone, if not more, in our lives, be it a trusted friend, sibling, spouse, or whatever, who will help us take things captive in our thinking. That we need someone who will stand by us and help storm the sinfulness and the corruptness of our thinking and help us to think straight. One of the things that I appreciate, and I know it's the same for Don, that we appreciate about each other's friendship is the honesty and the openness. And I I sometimes will go into Don and say, Don, I need you to tell me if I'm thinking crooked here. And he'll very often come back and say, yes, you are, son. And he will do the same and says, Chris, am am I getting paranoid here? And I'll say, yes, you are, Don but someone who will stand with us and challenge us and think those things through for, with us. May I further suggest that if we're going to win the battles for our mind, then we need to give permission, therefore, to someone who will be brave enough to tell us when we are wrong or when we are crooked or when we are dumb or when we are foolish or when we are perverse and sometimes just stupid. Sometimes the kindest words that I have ever been told are simply, you know, Chris, you are wrong. That my thinking is out of kilter, my thought pattern isn't right, that there is something that I need to go and put right in the situation. And you know, 
If we're truly wanting to storm the fortresses of our mind, then we need help. It is not easy and it is not comfortable. If you are a true friend, then you will speak truth into a situation. If you call someone a friend and they don't tell you the reality of where you are at in your thinking and your speech and in your language, then I'm not sure that they're really a friend. So what does it mean to take our thoughts captive in a practical sense? What are the vital steps that need to be taken? It starts here very much with our worldview. Our way of thinking needs to be open to God's scrutiny. I'll come back to this in a few moments, but I am who I am because of where I was born and how I was raised, and that affects my worldview. But that perhaps needs to be challenged. The very way we think, the very angle and perspective we come from in our thinking needs to be open to the challenge of God the Holy Spirit. You know, he already knows what you and I think, but there is an incredibly powerful step. There is a, there's something happens when we stop and say, God, I invite you to challenge the way that I think. Something incredibly powerful happens. It's not as if he's gonna get caught by surprise or he's gonna be embarrassed or he's gonna be timid. He knows. But something happens when we say, God, I am so desperate for you. I'm just gonna invite you and say, come and have a look at my heart. You know, I love the words of David the Psalmist in 139, which we probably all know. And he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David knew that God knew his thoughts. God spoke to him about his thoughts. But here he says, Lord, I want to give you an invitation. You know, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he was confronted about it by Nathan, and then he wrote Psalm 51. It says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I love the message when it says, of the same verse, what you're after is truth from the inside out. Enter me, then conceive a new true life. When I am confronted by this psalm, and I am every time, and when I'm challenged and provoked, I ask myself two questions. First of all, I ask myself, whose argument is winning in my head? Is it the argument that our culture puts forward that says, for example, that you are successful if you are wealthy, if you are liked, if you're fashionable, if you're desirable, and so on? Is it culture's argument that is winning in our heads about sexuality? Or what could possibly be wrong with doing something that the Bible stands against as long as you love that person? But it's okay because culture says it's okay. What do you mean and how dare you say it is wrong for me to be angry and grumpy and vindictive and self-centered and wanting my own way? Who is really setting the agenda for my life? You know, We are never going to take our thought life captive until we release the worldviews that are not of God. And that needs a close scrutiny with others and with the Holy Spirit. You know, here at Gateway, there are some very real challenges around this issue. What does a successful Christian look like? Is it someone that must have a university degree or something like that? Do we need to have a good job, a good income, or a career pathway that allow us us to do what we want, when we like, with whom we like? Where did that mindset come from? 
What does a successful church look like? A full one? I don't know. Where does that one come from? For many, it is our culture that is setting these standards and asking these questions that shape us. Those which are driven by success and pursuit of happiness or by comparison. Not that these intrinsically are wrong in and of themselves, but they are shaping us perhaps more than his spirit is. And you know, I have to ask myself a really, really hard question. And that despite what I would say publicly, my second question to myself is when I read things like Psalm 139 or Psalm 51 is what, whose arguments do I really want to win in my head? Or am I comfortable with where I'm at? It is not a a given that as Christians we will say, oh, I want Christ's way of thinking. If we want Christ's argument to win in our heads, then we need to put them there intentionally. We have to say, we want you to be the center of our life. God does not take the center of our life and our thinking and our thought patterns by accident. He has to be invited. I just loved what Don said last week, that we don't drift into the deep things of God because we need to put them there intentionally. God is not the center of Gateway because we are a Christian church. He is the center when we ask him to be and that we need to make him the center of our lives for the church to have him as the center. It's a simple question, who do we really want to win the arguments of our mind. The question then needs to be asked is, do we want him to be at the center of our thoughts and therefore our actions and that we realize the decision is ours? As, um, this is a terrible confession, sorry guys, I don't really listen to a lot of worship, a Christian worship, I, that's probably unforgivable sin, but it's, I really don't, I just don't. Um, but I have really been struck by, uh, it may, I don't know if it's new or old or whatever it's come from, I think it comes from Bethel. And the words go like this, it says, you unravel me with a melody, you surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears have gone. And it's that first line that com- continually impacts me. You unravel me with a melody. I, I believe that if we are going to break down the fortress of our mind, if we are going to take our thoughts captive, the first thing that we need to ask him is to unravel us. We are so busy, we are so complex, we are so difficult, we are so everything. And we just need to invite the Spirit of God to come and start to unravel the ways of our mind. Why do we think the way that we do? What causes that? Why did that push my button? Why did I get angry? Why did I, oh! Holy Spirit, come and start to unravel some of the hurt and some of the brokenness. And when we take seriously the invitation to make Christ Lord, he will start unraveling us through the ways that, for the ways that we think and the ways that we speak. Today, let us not neglect the fact or ignore the fact that there is a war going on for our lives. I made reference to it earlier, I wanna come back to it now, this whole area of spiritual warfare. And if the enemy knows, and the enemy does know, that if he can make us think the way then he wants us to think, then freedom in God, freedom to think like he wants us to think is a long way off. If he can help us concentrate on comparison, inferiority, shame, rejection, image, 
then he knows that his work is partly done. Up until two years ago, Richard Charteris was the Bishop of London. You probably never ever heard of him or probably never ever seen him, but he was one of the most outstanding bishops that there has ever, ever been. A truly remarkable man of God in so many ways. He was the executor of the will of Diana, Princess of Wales. He spoke at her funeral and had a memorial service. He performed the christening of Prince William, amongst many things, and today he sits in the House of Lords. He is a huge influence in the Church of England. A couple of years ago, prior to his retirement, he caused furore. He was probably gonna be sacked if he wasn't gonna retire. He upset many people, for when in a speech he said the following, London will be won by one of the following forces in the next 30 years. Islam, materialism, or Christianity. The battle is on for, us, for the soul of London, and one of these three will win. And then he goes on to say, I am giving my life and ministry to ensure that it is Christianity. I fully agree with what he said, and I'd like to say it's the same for Hamilton and the same for New Zealand. The battle for this nation and for this city is well and truly on, and it is a battle that has been waged over our lives and over our minds. And what will win will be hugely influenced by the decisions that we make as the people of God in allowing ourselves to be open to him and the Holy Spirit and allowing him to move in us and through us. I would like us to partner in saying to God, examine me and examine my worldview, examine my priorities, look at my bank balance, my calendar, my viewing habits, my timetable, my my rugby schedule. Look at the way I speak to people that are different. Look at the culture that is at the very center of my heart. Look at my web usage. Look at my Instagram. Look at the words that I used, the sentiments that have been in my mind and in my heart that no one can see. Examine me when no one else is around. And the crucial thing that we have to do is to believe the Bible. And what I'm gonna say to you next will divide you into two categories. Some of you are gonna say, oh yes, fantastic. And the rest of you are gonna say, oh man, he is so sad. Just based on this, you may think I'm sad anyway, but I'm not worried about it. There are parts of the Bible that I do not understand, but I will strive with the energy that I have to learn as much as I can. But probably, oh, it was 45 years ago, I made a decision as a teenager that I was going to believe the Bible, of course, not fully understanding it, but yet fully trusting the author. If you wanted to sum up my life, you would do it in these four lines, and this is what will cause the response. And it set the course for my life. Do I understand it all? Absolutely not, haven't got a clue sometimes. But I do have questions, and I have loads of questions. But I believe it, and therefore my life is built on the authority of the book and not on my own authority. So how does this fit in with a worldview? Well, it fits this way, and it is down to choice. Will I allow the Bible to shape the way I view society, or will I allow society to shape the way that I view the Bible? It's all about a mindset marriage, sexuality, transgender issues, money, power, wealth, missions, politics, all those should be shaped by the book that we read. We need to allow it to shape our minds, the way we think and the 
opportunities that it brings our way. See, the fight that is really going on in our mind is this. Do we really believe that God knows best? I think it's a really tough question. Do we really believe that God knows best? A missionary, a very successful missionary to the Native Americans in the 18th century by the name of David Brainyard. He died a very young man, but he was incredibly successful in seeing a lot of Native Indians come come to Christ. And he was asked for help one day. This person said to him, he says, I have a dream in which I am a bone between two dogs and they are fighting. And the guy said to him, one is white and one is black. And David Brainard asked the man, which dog wins? And the reply came, the one I feed the most. Whatever we feed will win the battle for our mind. If we are going to win the thought war, then we have to feed it with the right stuff. And so really practical, very, very simple. What does it mean to believe the Bible? First of all, we choose to believe that God knows best, not me, but him. Secondly, we choose to submit our lives to the authority of scripture, not to create a new authority that gives me a way out on things that I don't like, but I choose to obey scripture. I choose to believe that the plain meaning of scripture is the right way to live so that it influences my attitude, my words, and everything else up to my my viewing habits. Thirdly, we choose to allow my culture to be shaped by God's and not the other way around. The culture of my life is not shaped by the fact that I am Welsh, white, probably middle class, if I can use that phrase, and living in New Zealand. My culture, or the culture of my life, should be shaped first and foremost by being a follower of Jesus Christ and an avid observer, observer and follower of his, of his word. That my citizenship is now not of New Zealand or Wales or the United Kingdom, but my citizenship is of a different place and it is the kingdom of God. And I do not take my culture and wrap it around the word of God but I take the word of God and I wrap it around my culture and I ask God to show me what change I need to make. That this is the ultimate authority, not what has shaped my life. And fourthly, we choose to live humbly and in the words of Peter, I want to humble myself under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt me in due time. I choose to believe that God is genuinely better than me and that he is a better decision maker than me and he is better discerning at what is good than I am. See, to keep our thoughts under control, we need to cry out to God for power. There's a little phrase in 2 Corinthians that we read, 10 verse four, it says, it's only used in one other place in the Bible, but it says here, we have divine power to pull down strongholds and arguments. It is not about us being clever enough to work out life, culture, and values. It's about his power in his life. You know, we know that we can't change our own thought life. We do need God. You know, time is going, and I just wanna, in the next few minutes, I just wanna make a little bit of a confession to you. And um, the most difficult thing that I do at my stage of life, sounds like I'm about 90, doesn't it? Uh, At my stage of life, the most difficult thing that I do 
on a regular basis is exactly what I'm doing now, is preaching and teaching in front of you. Gateway is the home of incredible preaching week in, week out. I believe that we have the privilege of sitting under one of the finest teachers that we would ever, ever find. And for me to stand up when I do and share with you completely intimidates me and freaks me out. Not that any pressure ever comes from Don. I get lovely texts from him. I had one this morning, didn't mention the rugby, I'll text him after, do all that sort of stuff. It's simply the reality of the challenge I face. So you may find it hard to believe because perhaps it doesn't show, but I may seem okay and confident. The actual truth is I am a completely unconfident. I have no confidence in my preaching. I have no confidence in my preparation. I have no uh, confidence in my ability to teach or help you with any single thing. I never have. So when I stand before you today on days like this, I am so nervous. There's a well-worn pathway to the bathroom. I am so nervous, whether it be 10 people or 1,000 people. But the reason I am able to push through my doubts, my insecurities, my lack of confidence is because I really believe in this book. I really believe in its authority and that it is the living word of God. And I really believe that God is who he says he is. So in reality, it doesn't really matter if I am outstanding at this or not, for if this word touches our spirit through my preaching, then something will happen. Something will be changed. This is where our authority comes from. It's realizing that his power is available to each and every one of us. As we do conclude, Musicians, where are you? I can't see you. Can you come and join me, please? As we conclude, I want to remind us something of what Don said a few weeks ago on his series on generosity. When he was speaking, he referenced Matthew 6, verse 25, which says this, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. And he simply added this comment, If you are exalted by scripture to take no thought, then this probably means that more than likely you will be offered a thought, something that will make you question, something that will make you doubt, something that may even make you worried or may be anxious. He says a thought will be offered by an enemy of our minds and souls, that we are introduced to an alternative and a thought than we have to decide whether or not to take it. I believe that when it comes to the the battle for the control of our minds, that in addition to what we have already discussed, that the enemy of our soul on a daily basis in his attempt to mess with us spiritually and mess with us in our minds, he does so by offering us a thought and he poses it as a question that we can either run with or we can ignore. Classic. Did God really say that? Is that what he really meant? But if we can start to resist, then we will start to overcome and we will start to win. Let me try and explain very briefly. So here are a few examples that I have jotted down over this last week in my own experience where I was offered a thought and I had to decide whether or not to run with it 
or ignore it. One such thought invited me to be critical of someone, but I chose not to because I chose to believe that that person just not, didn't fully understand the situation and they made a mistake. But man, I was invited to criticize them. I had an invitation in my mind and from the enemy to be offended when someone said something to me in a wrong way, but I chose to believe that person was simply having another bad day. I was offered a thought that someone was rude to me, but chose to believe that the words just came out wrong and they didn't mean to say it as they did. The next one doesn't show me in very good light at all. I was invited to judge someone I saw on the street who I didn't even know, but I was ready to judge them because of the way that they were dressed. I didn't take it, but I was offered a thought. I believe if we choose to run with such thoughts that we are offered, the enemy would have permission to mess with our minds and mess with our situations, and we would become annoyed, we'd lose our peace, and we would become offended. You know, it needs to be noted in all those situations when I was offered a thought, that person may have been rude, they may have been incapable, and they may have tried to offend me, but that's not my issue. I very rarely do this, but I'm gonna do this this morning. I'm gonna finish by throwing out a challenge to all of us. This coming week, as we talk about taking thoughts captive, I believe that if we are open and sensitive to what God wants to do for us in this area, we will be able to recognize in our mind that we will be offered a thought, that someone will say something to us and we will choose not to be offended. We will hold that thought and realize where it comes from. And the decision for us will be, what do we do with that thought? To be critical, to be offish, to be all those things that could be. Will we run with the thought? Will we allow it to get us cross, offended, judgmental? Or will we choose to ignore what is a thought and take that thought captive for his glory? I believe that as we take thought by thought, we become overcomers for his sake. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.